Well, we come to the concluding elements of the anointing of Jesus Christ in John chapter 12. And we have taken uh, more time really than I anticipated doing this as we looked at uh, Mary's act of worship, the extravagant act of worship that was there, the lavishness of her uh, worship of Jesus Christ in the context of this uh, meal. We also looked at the standard worship. That we have the worship of who? Of Martha serving a meal. That this was her act of worship, not complaining as she had earlier, not with any kind of of animosity, uh, not harried by the task before her, but willingly serving God. And that is an act of worship. We saw Simon the leper and his response of thanksgiving, offering up his home and resources to have this meal held there in honor during a very busy Passover week. And so here we have uh, these wonderful examples of worship. And we hopefully have learned something about our worship, that uh, it should be costly, that we do not come into the house of the Lord empty-handed. We come ready to give of ourselves and our and our and of our possessions, that we might demonstrate our thanksgiving to God. And that, again, was one of the facets of worship. Each of these people uh, wanted to express to Jesus their thanksgiving. When you consider all that he has done for them, uh, not only in terms of of, uh, Simon not being a leper anymore, of, of Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, being alive and seated with honor at the table, Um, but also thankful for the salvific work of Jesus Christ in their life. That they had been rebuked and were corrected. And this was their statement of thanksgiving, rejoicing in God's continuing work in our lives. We often think that once I get saved, well, now everything is just going to live for God. And that's just not the case. Um, Once we become a follower of Jesus Christ, we know that sanctification is a bumpy road. That there are valleys in which we fall, that we need to be rebuked and corrected. And, and when we look at Timoth, Paul's instruction in Timothy, the word of God is quick and powerful. It is, it is effectual, and we need to use it. But if you look at over half of the activity of using the word of God in ministry to one another is corrective in nature. And what assumes something. What does it assume? It assumes that you're making a lot of mistakes. <laughs> And Mary, Martha, were no different, right? Um, Martha was corrected. She straightened it out. Jesus Christ had to rebuke her. Um, and Mary was in error and, and broke Jesus' heart, it says very clearly, and, and had to be corrected. And, but they responded to it. They didn't, they didn't cower away from it. They didn't just suddenly drop their head and walk away. It's, uh, they didn't get angry um, they recognized their sin. They recognized the loving nature of rebuke and correction. And they responded. And out of that comes this wonderful worship. And when we look at the lavish acts of worship throughout the scriptures, we find that overwhelmingly it is a response of people recognize that the greatest gift that God has given me is forgiveness. And the more I have experience that forgiveness, 
the deeper I grasp it, the, the breadth of it, the height of it, and the wonder of his mercy and his grace, the more I am drawn to worship him and the, and the less the cost means to me, and thus the more costly I offer. And we looked at the example of David, uh, especially last week, um, in that uh, setting of his repentance of instead of doing it man's instead of doing God's way he did it man's way repented of that and then the lavishness but we also learned that in the midst of lavishness it's not for everyone to look at it's rather an act of humiliation it is a humble service that we give with no expectation of anything because we don't expect more because we already have a debt we're trying to kind of repay I once received a thank you note for a thank you note. That was the oddest thing I've ever had happen to me in my life um, because now I'm in debt again. I wrote the thank you note because they did an act or, or gave something generously to me. And so I wrote a thank you note and then I get a thank you note for the thank you note. And I'm like, well, now I'm, I'm, I'm in debt again. <laughs> Do you write a thank you note for the thank you note for the thank you note for the gift? And yet, that's what we expect. Our acts of worship and service are an expression of thanksgiving to God, humbly saying, I owe you so much, this is the least I can do. And that's what Luke tells us, that, when, that Jesus says, when you have done everything there is, when you have obeyed everything there is, here is your response, I am an unprofitable servant, I have only done the minimum. I have only done what is required of me. Why should anyone pat me on the back? Why should God ever have to express thank you to me for thanking him? For he is the one that initiated it all. And so these, these individuals weren't looking for a thank you. They weren't looking for any kind of, of uh, accolade uh, for just humbly, lavishly, thankfully worshiping God. But it does have an influence. It has an influence on those around. We looked at that last week when the aroma filled the room. And now everyone is impacted by it and has to respond. You either respond by joining that and enjoying that, that we can enjoy other people's costly worship. We can be the benefactors of that. Certainly Jesus was the benefactor of the anointing. Um, and, but there was also the aroma filled the room and everyone benefited from it because of all the travel and, and um, trust me, when you get a whole bunch of people traveling and cram them into a room for a meal, it can start to smell a little bit. And, but instead we had a fragrant room. So everyone benefited. And you would think everybody would have enjoyed that, but that's really not the case. And that is, sadly, the, what happens in churches today, is that we become like many others and start looking at it from a human perspective instead of from a divine perspective. Instead of seeing acts of worship as something that we can enjoy with them and participate in, we see that as something we should evaluate. 
We should carefully examine whether, what their motives were. We should examine the methodology of their worship. We should examine all of these things, and we forget that we have entered into a, a critical spirit where sometimes we just need to enjoy acts of worship together. And so we come to a sad portion of this meal where Jesus has to rebuke some of his own disciples. And it's not just one. Uh, the evidence is that the others kind of say, well, that, that sounds like about right. So let's look at this in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 12. And uh, we'll, we'll read from verse 1 on. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead, there they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. This is where we stopped last week. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, that is at the meal, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. So we have this extravagant, lavish, humble, thankful, influential act of worship penetrating the entire room. You can't miss it. You have in this, in this space uh, not only Jesus and his disciples, Jesus being the honored guest, but a secondary honored guest being Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha. And we don't know the relationship between this family and Simon the leper, uh, but there's Lazarus, probably a pretty young man. Uh, you might say, well, why do you think he's such a young man? Because he was, he was, it was said he, he got an opportunity to sit at the guest table the place of honor, and which a young man wouldn't. If he was an older gentleman or uh, more established, he w it wouldn't have been noteworthy. But John says, this is noteworthy. Here's Lazarus being seated next to Jesus, one of the most honored positions at the banquet. And so here they are, and, and we have them, and then we have the, the others that saw the resurrection of Lazarus. They were there. Remember, this isn't like the next day. This is a little while longer. So we have all those that were eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Lazarus that were also there. In addition, uh, you have those that have that, that family and friends of the region that just wanted to meet Jesus, and you had others traveling that, wanted, that heard him and wanted to come see him. This is not a teeny tiny affair. And so you have all these people uh, from the very committed and thankful all the way to the kind of just curious. You know, it's not every day you get to meet somebody that was dead four days and now is sitting there eating 
a meal. So you have the whole gamut there. The only one's really missing in this equation right here, as far as we know, seems to be his enemies. But then we find out that there is at that table his enemy. And I want to share with you that this is how most churches look like today. There is the same scale. You have within churches today, um, and I'm not going to exclude this church, you have between churches today, those who are very committed followers of Jesus Christ, who are willing to participate in worship in a humble, thankful um, way that influences others. They're willing to pay the cost. They'll take up their cross. They will follow Jesus. And you'll have everything from that to those who have witnessed Christ's work in their life and they're kind of riding the wave of, of it. And you have others that are just curious to see what's going on. And yes, in our churches, as we're going to see extensively today, there are those who are enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ who are against the testimony of Christ and yet they sit in church week after week. And you don't know it because you don't know their heart. Now we know Judas Iscariot. We know all about him, right? Um, but the disciples didn't. Everything we have recorded about Judas came after the glorification of Jesus Christ, after the, they uh, realized what he had done. Um, at the time, uh, they had no clue. We're going to see that later on when we have the Last Supper. Even at that late hour when Judas had already made the arrangements and just had to finish the task, they still were clueless about who he was. They still thought, maybe when I compare myself to the other disciples around the room, it might be me. And so they asked Jesus, is it me? What a wonderful question. That is such a wonderful question. We're going to get to it. It's weeks and weeks away. So we're going to handle it today too. <laughs> You'll need it again in weeks and weeks and weeks. Is it me? And that's really the question I want you to ask today. Is it me? Where am I on this scale of worship. Am I really just here to worship my own interests? Oh, that didn't sound the same as what I said before, did I? I said you were enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ, um, but now you're saying, Pastor, I'm here to worship my own interests? That's exactly what Judas was there to do. John says that this is the guy that was going to betray Jesus. This is the guy that was the treasurer of the group, and he was a thief. And uh, so, you know, one for you and two for me. Um, and if you don't think that goes on in charitable organizations today, you need to do a little more research because they are all top-heavy. That is that they'll tell you, and that's, there's a nice website there, I don't, I don't recall it right away, that tells you how many pennies of the dollar from an organization goes to administration, how many actually goes to work, you'd be surprised how many of them are over 60 cents of the dollar goes to their salaries and less than 40 cents goes to what you think it's going to. 
And that's why we just do direct things with the orphans in India and now in Kenya. Uh, with the pastors, we just do it directly. Wham! We, we just, in this day and age, there's no reason not to have direct contact um, because we don't want anyone skimming off the top. And so Judas was practicing what most charitable organizations do today. They skim off the top. And the leftover goes to the, this great uh, humanitarian uh, work. Um, but it's really just a very small percentage. So we come to this, and we realize Judas is really here just for his own interests. First of all, as a follower of Jesus Christ, he was interested in a kingdom and a place in that kingdom. He was interested in, what, in Jesus Christ throwing off the Roman Empire, uh, reestablishing Israel, and that he would be in that inner group. And so in terms of motivation to follow Jesus Christ, there are plenty of people out there of the ilk of Judas who just want to get something out of it. And I want to share with you that that is your primary motivation for being a Christian is I want to be a child of God in the kingdom of God, uh, but not to be a servant of God. I want all the good stuff that God can give me. Then you're in the company of Judas Iscariot. Follower of Jesus Christ, faithfully. Unbeknownst to everyone else what was in his heart, but he was serving his own interests. He was practicing something we see commonly practiced today. We're going to skim off the top. And so he was a thief. He took of his own. And so when he is confronted with this kind of extravagant worship, he, his, his response is predictable. Because we know his heart. Because the Bible's told us what is in his heart. But it was entirely unpredictable to them. And this I want to frame this for you. All right? You have no clue that Judas is the betrayer. You have no clue that he's the one that it said it would be better if he was never born. You have no clue that that's who he is. He is one of the top 12 people that you know of in the company of Jesus Christ. Uh, he, is the, he has been gi given the responsibility of being a treasurer. Okay, you don't give that to the person that is kind of wishy-washy. I mean, he's right there. And he is there for his own interests. And when we begin to frame this, now he is the spokesperson to address this extravagance of expense. And so he's the one that comes forward. And he says, listen, um, there are better uses for this extravagance than what it is. Now notice, he is not giving advice of what to do with a resource that's still available. <laughs> okay? Um, and so we have a business meeting saying we have this kind of funds, we want to put them to work for Jesus Christ. How can we do it? And you have an opinion, you have an opinion, and we'll discuss that and we'll figure it out. That's not what this was about. This was about someone complaining about something that could not be changed that had already occurred. So he puts forth this complaint. Why was not why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii? Again, you don't know how much 300 denarii is necessarily, but that is a year's wage. Okay, so 
Uh, don't think $300 here. Think uh, year's wage. And we talked about this two weeks ago. Uh, year's wage, average, I don't know, 60, 100,000. It depends on where you live in this country a little bit. Um, $1,000. Okay. Not my yearly wage, but that's okay. <laughs> yearly wage. Why wasn't this sold and the money used for the poor? Now, John's going to give us some information that for the person who is skimming the poor box, a thief taking money out of that for himself, um, this is kind of, he's protecting his own interest still, isn't he? I'm protecting my own interest because, um, you know, this is, this is a waste. What can we do with this now? Well, that's worship. The drink offerings, the, the grain offerings, the, the burnt offerings, these that you all bring before the Lord at the temple in Israel um, would appear to be a waste. But they are not. Because they're worship. And so his argument is, it seems valid. Remember, everyone respects him. He's in the leadership level of the church. We're not talking about some old grump that, that sits back in the corner about everything that we all know. No, we're talking about a leadership level. He's complaining. Why was this done? How, why would you let this happen? Why did you stop her? And the argument seems sound. Here we could have sold that and we could have taken care of all of these poor people. Think of how many people we could have Ford to feed was $75,000. Now I have contact with a group called People Helping People. Uh, and by the way, um, there are bananas and apples and onions and milk. Please take it with you or it will become food for my animals tomorrow. Okay, so whatever doesn't get going. Um, and uh, always asking for donations volunteers handing out food and through Roadrunner food banks and, and you have the storehouse, you always, you might say, wow, what could they, well, it would fund them for a little while and then what? Jesus makes a statement. It says this worship that she just did has eternal value. Feeding the poor has temporal value. And so we need to invest in that which has eternal value. He says this is the only occasion that she has to do this. This is her chance because I'm here now. I won't always be with you. You'll have poor people with you always and they'll always be around. They'll always be there. And yes, when you go into the temple, not only are you going in there to sacrifice your lamb or your bull or, to, or, your, or your turtle doves or to pour out your drink offering or your grain offering, but you're also, as you're going in, expected to give alms to those who are the poor, the blind, the maimed, that cannot work, and that is part of your worship. So Jesus Christ is not here advocating that we ignore the poor. But in terms of our service to God, worship of his person takes priority over the physical needs of people. I say, what? 
Yes, worship of the person of God is a higher priority than the care of the physical needs of other people. And he communicates that. And so he stops Judas in her tracks and says, leave her alone. I want you to notice why he had to say that. Because the complaint was against the lavish worshiper. The complaint wasn't directed at Jesus. The complaint wasn't directed at Lazarus sitting next to Jesus. It wasn't, the, the complaint wasn't really directed to um, the other disciples at the table. The complaint was directed to one person, and that one person was the person who was pouring it all out on Jesus because she was filled with thanksgiving over the wonderful forgiveness she had received, over her brother's life, over all that he is, that he is the, the life. He is the resurrection and the life. And we also know that this was a movement of God in her heart, that it was part of the prophetic declaration of his death, burial, and resurrection, which would happen within the week. At least the burial. Resurrection was nine days. And he says, this is, she's preparing me for burial. She is making a prophetic declaration through this powerful act of worship. Let her alone. Wow. Jesus just sat on that right there. You see, when we get a critical spirit regarding people's worship, as we talked about last week, you enter into some very dangerous territory where God is ready to rebuke not them but you. Because really what we're doing is saying, I'm uncomfortable with that kind of worship. I, I, don't, I don't agree with that. And I, or I think there's better ways to do it. I, I, and I prefer not to get involved in that. God can sort out people's motives much better than I can. God can sort that out. But when we are confronted with that, we have a choice. Do I want to be of the ilk of Jews that are only looking out for my own interests? Or am I looking out for the interests of others that God tells me to do? Am I looking out for that which glorifies God, even though it might not be of any substantial benefit to me directly? I want you to understand that Judas was benefiting from this worship. He was in a room filled with the aroma of spikenard, very strong perfume, very enjoyable. He was benefiting from it, but he wasn't benefiting as much as he wanted to. He wanted to trade the aroma of worship for a few coins in his pocket. I want more stuff. I don't want to enjoy more worship. And he was trading in his mind. In his mind, here's what he's trading. Because he didn't understand the nature of spiritual worship. And I see too many Christians today doing, making this exact choice. They are trading what they perceive as a temporal thing. Because how long was that aroma going to last in that house? Especially once Jesus gets done eating and leaves. On Jesus' person, it's going to last a little while longer. And in fact, the next morning, when he gets up and he goes to the triumphal entry, he is still anointed in oil. 
That doesn't go away overnight. All right? And so, but how long does it really last? The aroma once Jesus leaves, maybe a few hours. You may say, well, the benefit was, was pretty brief. Because you're measuring it by your physical senses and not your spiritual senses. Whereas for Judas, he's like, well, we could take this thing, this expensive, costly product, we can sell it, and then we can distribute it to the poor, um, and I can fill my own pockets, I can fill my own interests, and we think that, well, that's investing in, in sustaining life and people and maybe providing some clothing or housing for them. And, and also, um, it really builds up my personal wealth, and that's enduring. Come on. Is that accurate? Absolutely, because most of us think exactly that way. We do. We see owning real estate, owning our house, having material possessions, having closets full of clothes, having, having uh, all these physical things as enduring, and in fact, we call them capital expenses. We call them infrastructure. We, we, this is our building. I got a call from the pastor at Charity. They wanted to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the finishing of the construction of their building. And I was like, why? It's not your church. It's just the building. But we think that's enduring. That is not what you celebrate. You celebrate the coming together of a people of God to identify themselves as a local church to the glory of God. You want to celebrate that? I'll come celebrate that with you. That God's faithfulness over the year. But for a building... We're, I don't even know when we finish this building. I don't think it is finished. It may not ever be finished. I don't know. But you see, we think things of this world are enduring. And these acts of worship that we physically enjoy for really a br pretty brief period are here today and gone an hour. You might think this worship service is temporal. But your bank account is permanent because you don't understand worship. Because worship is an investment. And we find out about this in the book of Philippians. Where Paul says, when you pour this out before the Lord on earth, it is added to an account in heaven. What? Yes. What is poured out to God in extravagant worship on earth is recorded in heaven. Now we begin to realize that when I use, and, and, and again, it's in Revelation, it talks about the prayers being reserved in heaven till the time of God's wrath to pour out. So if you're wondering why God hasn't judged your enemies yet, it's because it's still the day of salvation, and one day the last martyr will be martyred, and then God will break open those prayers. They're still reserved in heaven. They're preserved there. God will break them open. It says the prayers of the saints will come before him as a, an aroma, and it will move him to 
judgment. And he will judge the earth in his wrath. It's all in Revelation 7, 8. With the trumpet judgments. That these are the prayers of the saints regarding the necessity of his judgment on the wickedness of this world. I say, well, that prayer you prayed and it just went off into the air and it's gone and it's temporal. No. It's because you do not understand the concept that what is poured out and done here for God to his worship is, is recorded and stored and treasured in heaven. And that is why the Bible says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And if my treasure house is a heavenly one, then I, and I recognize the only way I can invest in it is by pouring out the resources of my life here on earth, then I will do so. I will invest in that treasure house. But when I find out that if I build up my treasures on earth, that my heart then is connected to that and treasures that, and that's all I can think of, that I get to heaven and I am a pauper. Because this stuff is not enduring. This stuff will be destroyed. And fundamentally, what drove Judas's betrayal was that his heart was set on this world and not on heaven to come. He was set on his own interests in this life and not in the interests of God, who he claimed was his father. He claimed to be a follower of Jesus Christ, one of the leadership. And he was a son of the devil. Not my words. The Bible describes him. Is it me, Lord? Is it me? Is it I? Is that the way I worship? Is that what I'm here for? For my own interests? Or am I here to fill the storehouses of heaven with humble, extravagant, costly, thankful, powerful worship that can transform people's lives? It was because of an act of worship of someone else that I heard the gospel. And that act of worship lasted only that service. Those words have long been forgotten of that sermon. I don't even remember them. But that service transformed my life. And not just for the last 40 years. It has transformed my life forever. That act of worship has a dividend. I am the benefactor of that act of worship. I have been benefiting for all my days since that day when I was a little 10-year-old at that camp. I am the benefactor. And when I get to heaven, that one act of worship will be precious and enduring. And I'm sure there was somebody probably sitting there and saying, this preacher is boring. But he caught me. This guy hasn't, doesn't have 
good presentation skills, but he got me to listen to the gospel. I'm pretty sure during that sermon, people were sleeping. Bored. But it impacted me. And there is an eternal dividend. And that, man, that counselor, those, that staff, the kitchen staff that kept us fed at that camp, those acts of worship are enduring. That week of camp is long over. Most of those people don't even remember or don't know who I am. If I walked into Bass Lake Camp in Minnesota today, they would have clueless who I am for the most part. But it was there that I accepted the Lord as my Savior. That act of worship, that week, lasts. I'm not just talking about 40 years and the impact of my life and on those that, that God has, has enabled me to minister to. Uh, and, and you can just, that's how interest works. It just, you know, just one kid, one 12-year-old, 10-year-old kid. But then down the road, you start seeing that act of worship was so valuable. Oh, that we would recognize that our acts of worship have eternal dividends. And that the things of this world, even the things that are in, in fundamental nature are good, aren't the best. Or do we neglect the poor because of the statement of Jesus? No. And sometimes as an act of worship, we need to care for one another. And, and the Bible says that, that we, that in the family of God that one shouldn't have too much and one shouldn't have too little, that there should be this evenness. And if you want to call that socialism, go ahead. As a political thing, it stinks, but as a, as a fact of worship among, among those that want to serve God and please him, it, it is something very real. So yes, we can worship by caring for the poor. There's no doubt about that. Jesus Christ is not saying that. It is that um, do not think that that is the epitome of worship. Because that only lasts a short time. And the world does it. People helping people isn't a Christian organization. Boy, are they not a Christian organization. You know, and if they knew I was a pastor, and they probably wouldn't be cussing around me so much, but, but uh, maybe they would. I don't know anymore these days. But uh, they're trying to do a good thing. But it counts for nothing because if all your righteousness are like filthy deeds if you do not have Christ as your Savior. Christ says, that's garbage. If you're, if you're feeding the poor but not worshiping me, that counts for nothing. Zip in heaven. They're going to be in hell saying, we fed the poor, and just, but you didn't follow me. And your sins remain. Is it me? Is it me, Lord? Is it I? Am I the one that's going to be critical in our spirit? Am I going to be looking at other worshipers and proud and arrogant, but really I'm only here for my own interests? Or do I have a right understanding 
of the incredible value of worship. We talk about our times of corporate worship as, as precious and rare because really in your week, this one hour um, is, is not much. Yeah, we have Sunday school, we have evening service, um, but, but in terms of corporate time, that is very little. You spend so much more time with coworkers in ungodly environments. You spend so much more time in front of your television or computer or smartphone. So much more time being influenced by this world. These are rare opportunities for us to invest in something eternal and invest in something that doesn't bring glory to me, brings glory to God. That has dividends that last generations on earth and forever in his presence. Judas didn't get it. He was only interested in what was good for him. We have so much selfishness in churches today that it's a wonder that anything gets done. And the only reason things happen in churches is because the whole scale is in our churches. And there is this little sliver in some churches, some churches it's maybe more high, bigger percentage, there's this little group over here that are committed, humble, extravagant servants of God that do not care what the cost is to worship God with all of their heart, all of their soul, all of their mind, all of their strength, and thus all of their resources, the material things. And because of their commitment, others who are just curious, others that, that are witnesses but not participants, um, get to enjoy the aroma and then there are some that are thieves that are just sucking ministry out of churches because they're there for themselves. They're not there to serve. They're there to be served. And if you don't give me what I think I want and need, then I'm out of here. I'll go find somewhere else because they're thieves of worship like Judas. They're only there for their own interests. But let's be real clear. This middle two groups, the group that is there as a witness and the group that is there curious are equally there for their own interests. Because they are benefiting from the power of Jesus Christ's ministry, the power of the disciples' ministry, the power of the church's ministry, the power of one woman's extravagant worship. They were the benefactors of it and didn't add to it. They could enjoy it and it cost them nothing. The question is, who are you? Can we set our mind to realize that there is eternal matters at stake when we gather as a people to worship? There are eternal matters at stake how you live your life in your home. There are eternal matters at stake how you go to work and work and what attitude and evidence and, and ethic you bring there. There are eternal things at work and if, at, at, at risk there that you need to bring to the table and make those environments places of your worship 
to impact others so they can benefit from it, that there might be an eternal dividend to God's glory in heaven. There's an old song, it's old because I know they sang it in my commissioning, was thank you for giving to the Lord. It describes a heavenly scene with all these people lined up and, and they all um, come to people and say thank you for giving to the Lord. I was a life that was changed. Very touching song. Um, and, uh, but I want you to recognize that when we get to heaven, when someone, if someone walks up to me and says thank you for giving to the Lord, I'm going to go, well, you should be thanking him. And then you should be thanking them. And ultimately, it all means that we should be thanking just one person, and that is Jesus Christ. So even in heaven, don't come up to me and say, thank you for giving to the Lord. You can say, I thank the Lord for you. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you as the author of our salvation as the empowerer of our ministry. Lord, we thank you. And Lord, we want to serve you. I want to serve you all my days, faithfully. Lord, I recognize the accumulation of stuff here on earth is a pain. Create stress, worry, anxiety. And yet we have been instilled to do it by our culture. And then we are unwilling to pour any of it out for you. Forgive us, Lord, for this. This is covetousness. This is sin. This is selfishness. And it is error. Not only error morally, but as as error logically, for we have robbed ourselves by robbing you. Forgive us. Forgive us for that, those times when we are critical of others when we ourselves are doing so little for you. Lord, we thank you for your salvation. We thank you for your spirit. And we know that our church is not immune. If one of your very own followers of Jesus Christ in his personal ministry could betray him, it is certain that people in my ministry could betray you. Yes, Lord, we humble ourselves before you. And we consider ourselves and we pray that you might find us always ready to guard our hearts and our lives they might be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you as a reasonable act of worship. Praise in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.